Welcome to our journey. Our journey toward a more perfect union. Our more perfect union is an experiment, a grand experiment in something we all cherish, democracy. Welcome to our Radio Roundtable with higher education consultant, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, Harvard's Executive Director for Health and Human Rights, Dr. Natalie Alinos, and from Beacon Hill, Representative Jeff Roy, as we the people celebrate the journey of America toward a more perfect union. Welcome to A More Perfect Union. I'm Nick Remesong, along with my co-host, Chris Wolf. Joining us also this week from our radio roundtable of regulars, uh, higher education consultant, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones. Good morning. Good morning, Michael. Harvard's Executive Director for Health and Human Rights, Dr. Natalie Alinos. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, from Beacon Hill, our representative, Jeff Roy. And as always along with us, our station manager, Peter J. That would be me. That <laughs> would be you. And there Morning. is only you and you are one and solo. Uh, today is our wrap-up show. Peter, you want to discuss a little bit about that, about uh, what the format might be today? Well, I thought it'd be really good to have a look back at what has obviously been a pretty eventful year. Uh, you know, we always look at them and they go, aren't they all? But these past couple of years, <laughs> wow, wow. Yeah, so that said, <laughs> no shortage of news. Yeah. Yeah. I thought it'd be nice to have a look back uh, and about some of the great interviews that we had during the course of the past year, people who've graced us with their presence, enlightened us, maybe made us an hour smarter. So this one's for them. And I, I hope that we have an opportunity to get smarter all over again. So with that said, uh, I know that of all of the people that we've spoken to, they've all been, you know, just so brilliant. Mm -hmm. um, yes, we've been blessed and, with that. Uh, yeah. And uh, I thought maybe what we do is just, uh, you know, sort of launch in there with one of the great authors that we had an opportunity to interview. And we got to have him back, mm -hmm. Peter Canellos. And Peter appropriately wrote a book called The Great Dissenter, which in itself is a wow and just so timely, given everything that's gone on with the court in the past year. And the world has changed so much and is continuing to change so much under a new Supreme Court that just generates one surprise after another in my mind. Uh, and that said, um, I'd like for us to spend a few moments listening to part of the interview that we had with Peter Canellos. Uh, I'd like to throw it over to you, Peter. And if you could begin by telling us why you chose to write about uh, uh, John Marshall Holland and, and tell us some more about the man in your book. Thank you so much. Uh, you're, you're entirely right that I was inspired by exactly the, the lines and those and several others uh, in Holland's Descents when I was in law school. It was incredibly striking to me in the 1980s uh, to learn about somebody who had been on the court 100 years ago and was completely and utterly at odds with his colleagues. You know, he was the lone dissenter. He was the outlier. They barely paid attention to him. And yet there we were in the 1980s, and he was right in the mainstream of American law. So my interest in the book was to, to look into 
what it was that gave him the wisdom to sort of see the future as clearly as he did and, and why he was different from all of his colleagues, why I was able to see things so differently from all of his colleagues. So that was the starting point for the book. People often ask, you know, well, Harlan's significance, what is it? Why should we regard Harlan as such an important figure? Uh, and the answer to that is that, you know, during the time that he was on the court, which was 1877 to 1911, two big things happened in the United States. One is it was the Gilded Age. It was the time of uh, historic income inequality. You know, the, the rich became richer than they had ever been richer before. Uh, they built houses that were based on the, the castles of European kings. And at the same time, uh, it, many workers, immigrant workers, domestic workers, were making such low salaries that they were living, you know, four or five people to a room because they couldn't afford anything else, even though these were all working people. At the same time during that era, it was the start of segregation. There were all of these very important civil rights victories that happened in the Civil War. And in the 12 years after the Civil War, Congress was really, really committed to enforcing civil rights. So you look back on those eras and you say, okay, well, we now know what was important in those eras. And what happened? What, how did we get off on the wrong path? Well, the answer is it was not the fault of the presidents of that era. There were a lot of them and a lot of them were not particularly strong, but you know, it wasn't really their fault. Congress at every important juncture did step up. It was you know, not stepping up perfectly. There were plenty of years when, when legislation was blocked, but in 1875, Congress passed a civil rights law that said that uh, black people should have fair and equal access to transportation, to places of entertainment, to, to uh, restaurants and inns. The Supreme Court declared it unconstitutional. The 15th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution guarantees voting rights. State of Alabama passed a constitution that said that um, all uh, descendants of Confederate veterans grandfathered in as uh, as voters, everyone else is subject to all these rigorous tests as simple as like the polling person thinks you're a bad character and can reject you. Supreme Court said, well, this is an attempt to defeat the 15th Amendment and disenfranchise black people. And also, by the way, a lot of poor whites. But they said there was nothing they could do. So they, they uh, said it was a political question and uh, declined to take action. Then we find out in the epic case of Plessy v. Ferguson that the U.S. Supreme Court endorsed the separate but equal doctrine, the legal architecture of segregation. In all three of those cases, the common thread, John Marshall Harlan was the sole dissenter. On the economic side, as all those tremendous injustices were happening in society and, and uh, there was violence in the United States around uh, economic deprivation issues, uh, Congress stepped up passed the Sherman Antitrust Act to be able to break up monopoly businesses that set wages and prices. But the Supreme Court declared it unconstitutional. Congress stepped up to say, we're going to pass an income tax, which is a lot fairer than the tariff system, which had funded the government before, because under tariffs, you know, the cup of coffee that had the, you know, one cent premium on it when it was imported from overseas, that one cent was the same if you were John D. Rockefeller or if you were an immigrant worker. Uh, not the same percentage, the same penny. Uh, so an income tax is a much fairer way of funding the government. It was declared unconstitutional. Then in the case of Lochner v. New York, the Supreme Court stepped in and said that state legislatures can't pass laws to protect workers, that all labor legislation was per se unconstitutional. 
What happened in those three cases? The common thread, John Marshall Harlan dissented in all three of them. So what the book goes on to talk about is how those dissents planted a seed uh, for the future. And it was not some perfect line, you know, and it required a lot of other action, it required a lot of other people doing so. But at all these crucial moments, people were reading Harlan's dissents. That includes uh, Thurgood Marshall, when he, he and the, the team of lawyers from the NAACP Legal Defense Fund was challenging segregation. There are stories of them sitting at a round table and Thurgood Marshall standing up and, and reading Harlan's dissent in Plessy v. Ferguson. Some of those lines that Jeff was inspired by, you know, the Constitution is colorblind and neither knows nor tolerates classes among citizens. The humblest is the peer of the most powerful. There is no caste here. That's, that's Thurgood Marshall inspiring his troops to overturn segregation, which did happen with Brown versus Board of Education in 1954. Same time, a young congressman, Cordell Hull, in the early part of the 20th century, used Harlan's dissent in the income tax case to sit on the well of the House and talk about how incredibly unfair this decision was, goad on the House to pass a constitutional amendment that ultimately restored the income tax as a fair way of funding the government. This happened in many, many other instances as well. Uh, and it shows that, you know, these dissents are not crying in the wilderness. Uh, they are, in fact, a, a roadmap to a different future if you have the patience and the wisdom and the vision to sort of see that future. Well, as I, as I said in the interview with Peter, it's one of my all-time favorite books now, primarily because it really demonstrates how we've been through this kind of turmoil with the Supreme Court before. Mm. And we've also had rights taken away before. And Peter also demonstrated, too, that many of us don't know our own history. I love the interview, and yeah. I think you're yeah. right. We need to get him back. Mm-hmm. Interesting comment on rights, and I've mentioned this one before, with, with rights being taken away. You know, they talk about uh, George Carlin's line was one that I always really liked. You know, they call it the Bill of Rights. They don't call it the Bill of Privileges, you know, mm-hmm. because privileges can be taken away. But unfortunately, what we're seeing is a time when the court is deciding the validity of rights sometimes on technicalities and that's disturbing yeah it's just the idea that you know we can we'd be looking at a court that was going out actively seeking oh yeah to uh mandate uh changes drastic changes well public any public statement by the supreme court mm -hmm. saying that we ought to look at this and we ought to look at that Mm -hmm. is a really dangerous because they're supposed to be reactive not Mm -hmm. proactive Mm -hmm. they're supposed to look at existing law how it's being applied to cases and determine whether or not that constitutionality of that law is is fair and it's very clear that there is a change in basic thinking here that i find unsettling they're trying to lift the blindfold from Lady Justice and just say, go out and look for trouble. And, you know, I, I you know, and I hate to put this on Natalia, but of all of us in our roundtable here who really have a lot to look at in terms of how recently they were added in terms of the Constitution and their rights. It's women in this country. Yes. Um, and when you think about it folks, we've been flawed from the beginning and we need to own up to that. Uh, And when you think about the fact that women only recently in our history have had the right to vote 
and they still don't have equal rights. I think uh, we don't hear from women enough bashing we men over the head uh, <laughs> over that fact. Would you agree, Natalie? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Michael. And of course, I agree. And when we talk about rights, it's also important to look at the, you know, what, what data do we have? You know, we know that women for the same job get paid less than men. We know that women have fewer opportunities in many sort of realms of, of life. And then Roe v. Wade comes along and mm-hmm. really is an attack. And I know we had two fantastic episodes. So I don't want to preempt some of the clips, but it would be wonderful to hear from those because fundamentally that Roe v. Wade, you know, is not just a women's issue. Obviously it takes many people, men and women, people of all genders to get pregnant, but the impacts, the impacts of an unsafe abortion are borne by that pregnant person. The impact that can be life or death by making abortion illegal, uh, Economic impact if you have to go cross states, possibly legal impact if you're going to be, you know, at risk of of being persecuted or jailed for for something is borne by the pregnant person. So while pregnancy itself requires, you know, more than one individual, the impact has been for, you know, has been felt primarily by women and uh, people who can get pregnant. So that was, I think, such such a difficult moment to see our rights be um, taken away, you know, and that was privilege. Yeah. And that was one case where I think that opened up our eyes to the Supreme Court. Mm. First through the fact that the information leaked before it was officially announced. And and then when even then when the official announcement came down, it was still very shocking. And and to see something that has been stated as existing law by all of the candidates who were interviewed for their positions as justices, and then to see what I can only consider turnabout in the collective thinking of the court, it was it was shocking. Is you know there's there's not another word for it. And so you know we did two programs with respect to that. One on on the issue itself, of course. I, well, I will start by just saying briefly that. Yeah, a tipping point is almost an understatement. Yeah. Uh, we have a we have a lot to unpack here, uh, along with the immediate impact on women's rights, health, well-being. The Supreme Court itself is now under suspicion of of being every bit as political as everything else, uh, and the nature of the justices and what those remedies ought to be, and the impact on the potential impact on other laws, other findings is something that I think we should also unpack. But I think the most immediate thing on the table is what were they thinking, plain and simple? The majority of Americans support abortion rights, pro-choice, clearly, uh, and have done so for a long time. I'm dazzled by not just the outcome, but the reasoning or, or lack thereof behind the outcome. And with that, I just open the floor. Well, I want to just jump in and say I wasn't as dazzled by the opinion as I was dazzled by how we all knew that this was going to happen and that this has been building over the course of the last 40 years. And it's been a predictable path that this was going to happen. And 
I'm not shocked. I'm extremely disappointed. Um, but this is not the first time that the Supreme Court has made a terrible decision. Uh, the Supreme Court has a history of making simply awful decisions uh, in the course of its history. I mean, the cases involving slavery in 1860s, the uh, Plessy versus Ferguson in the 1890s. And uh, now this, uh, this decision will stand uh, as one of the worst uh, decisions in the history of this court. And as Nick so appropriately pointed out, it's the first time in the history of the court where they've actually taken away a right that was ingrained in our society over the last 50 years. And not only taking away a right, uh, um, it's an affront to autonomy for women. Uh, and it's a sets us up on a course for the elimination even of even more rights. And if you read the concurrence by Justice Thomas, mm. he's talking about eliminating uh, all of the substantive uh, due process protections that we uh, have enjoyed since the 1960s and um, calling into question whether there still exists a right to privacy, calling into question whether uh, contraceptive use is uh, is legal under the Constitution, calling into the uh, question uh, same-sex marriage. It's a whole host of things that have been thrown uh, into the fire. But I tell you, um, this has been an orchestrated effort over the course of the last 40 years. And really, uh, I hope it's a tipping point and I hope it's a wake-up call. I'm not seeing it because I've seen some elections that have taken place over the last few days, which uh, seem to continue us along this path. And I know we have midterm elections coming up in November, and uh, I'm very concerned about what those are going to do. And then uh, we have a presidential election coming up in 2024, and I'm deeply concerned about the consequences. So we've got a, a whole host, and uh, I'm going to stop there because I think I've launched enough uh, at this point. And uh, our guests, I think, have a lot to say on this topic. I'll just jump in. There's so much to say on this. And I think that there we could spend hours talking about this and still have more to talk about. I, let's, let's do that. Let's. Do that. I was not even remotely <laughs> surprised. And in fact, uh, you know, I'm, I am a published scholar and, and educator specifically and a pre previous educator before I was elected to the Senate specifically in the aspects of reproductive justice and the law. And if anybody who has any knowledge about any of these issues, who has been even remotely paying attention, knew this was coming and has known this was coming for a long time and certainly knew that this was coming from the moment that Donald Trump was elected president of this country. So I was not at all surprised um, by the decision. But when the leaked, when the, the leaked draft came out, you know, I said at that point, Every single civil, basic civil right that has been interpreted into the Constitution over the last 50 years is going to be at very grave risk if this decision becomes final. And sure enough, that decision has now become final. And, you know, sometimes it's really lousy to be right. But every single thing that we have relied upon, that we have held near and dear for my entire lifetime, for the lifetimes of several of us on this conversation, and for the lifetimes of many people who are listening, all of those basic civil rights are on the verge of being eviscerated. 
And one of them is already gone, not gone in Massachusetts. And Jeff and I and our colleagues are doing a lot of work to even shore up what we have, what we have already done. Um, we have made significant progress and we have much more to do. Um, but contraception, assisted reproductive technology, anything and everything that has to do with autonomy and health decisions and personal decisions that didn't exist 200 years ago is now on the line. And that's basically what the majority opinion says. And frankly, I think you can you can see the significance of this decision just by virtue of the fact that all three of the dissenting judges wrote their dissent together. Now, I'm an, I'm a lawyer. Jeff's a lawyer. I don't know about you, Jeff, but I have never seen a dissent written collectively like that. Usually the way dissents are written, the way any judicial opinion um, is written is that you have one justice write it and the others join in. This one was written all three of them together. We dissent, not I dissent and other people join. We dissent. And that is significant. And we have absolutely no reason whatsoever, as the dissent rightly points out, to believe the justices in the majority when they say, oh, don't worry about the, that Thomas, uh, the Justice Thomas concurrence. Don't worry about those other rights. We're not going to touch them. Scouts honor. That's exactly what they say in the dissent. Scouts honor. We're not going to do it. Don't worry. Yes, they are. Yes, they mm -hmm. are. And we should be worried. Now, I happen to uh, to agree that this is a tipping point. I just don't know that. I, I think the difference between the way Jeff looks at it and the way I look at it is that it's going to tip one way or the other. And like, more likely the other way, like continuing on this road. Yes. I sure hope that we are going to see term limits or some other reform come through for the Supreme Court. But we don't have that right now. And we are certainly not going to have that in the next five months. And I don't think we're going to have it even in the, in the next five or 10 years. We might, and I would love to be wrong about that. But right now, given the current state of affairs, your state representative and your state senator are two of the most important people for preserving, protecting, and working to advance basic civil rights and human decency. Well, even prior to that discussion, uh, going back a few episodes to episode 48, we had a great discussion. And again, we we addressed this topic of Roe v. Wade uh, when we had Jesse Murmel on our show, of course, who was quite brilliant. Feel free to jump in and give us even the beginning of like, you know, how, what what is in the document in case people haven't read it, as well as the implications primarily at the national level, but also for Massachusetts. You know, I think we we need to discuss both. Sure. Well, well, I think you're right to start with what's in it and what does it mean. So uh, it is a hundred plus page document. We won't summarize the whole thing. Uh, but the gist is that if this draft, and it's important to emphasize that it is a draft, turns out to be the actual decision, which we're expecting in June, uh, give or take, uh, it will overturn Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which is another important Supreme Court case related to abortion um, that, well, I, I think weakened the, the case uh, for, for what states would have to do to protect abortion rights, also upheld the right to abortion. Uh, those would be overturned in no uncertain terms. And, you know, I'll tell you that those of us who are, are in this movement, and I've been doing this work for 20 plus years, sometimes as my day job and sometimes just, uh, you know, as an advocate and an activist, uh, have been certain that Roe would be overturned in this case, either effectively or 
in reality. And I, I was literally with the head of national NARAL last week. And the conversation was, would it be an outright overturn or would they try to thread the needle a little bit so that they could say, oh, no, 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 abortion is still legal in America. You know, we just instituted whatever the changes would be. And, and we are now clear that what we're facing is an outright overturning of Roe versus Wade, something that we have been told time and time again by Supreme Court justices in their confirmation hearing was settled law. And, and now we see that uh, that is very much not the case. What that means is your access to abortion care in the United States of America becomes an accident of geography. Whether or not you can access the care you need will depend on where you live. And let's be honest about whether or not far-right extremist Republicans control your state legislature. That said, no one will be safe from the impact of this case. Yes, we live in nice, bright blue Massachusetts, where we passed the Roe Act, where we passed the Access Bill a few years ago, and we have protections around abortion care. Number one, those protections don't go far enough. And number two, what we're already seeing, even before this leak a few days ago, is that patients from states with the means to travel, where there have already been bans, are getting on planes, are getting in cars, and are coming to states like Massachusetts and New York and California, where there are protections in place, and they're seeking abortion care here. Access to abortion care in Massachusetts has been so-so. We don't have the number of doctors, providers, and appointments that we need, but it's been so much better than many other states. We are about to be flooded by out-of-state patients seeking care here. And so lest anyone go to bed at night thinking that you are safe here in Massachusetts, that unfortunately is far from the truth. The next layer of this is that Republicans have been clear, there have been leaked memos, uh, and so this isn't speculation, this is their own writing, that if they gain control of Washington, D.C. in 2024, they are going after a federal abortion ban. So the Roe Act and any protections that we have here would instantly become moot and abortion would be illegal across the country. So uh, not to be Debbie Downer, but this is a, a very, very grim set of circumstances. The consequences, personal, health, economic, you name it, will be massive and no state, no individual will be spared. One thing that strikes me, um, I think, in listening to the candidates that we've interviewed, all of them, I have to say that I feel kind of proud about living in Massachusetts. We have candidates who come forward who are not blasting out dog whistle issues uh, just to get people angry because anger turns out votes and they know it. Yeah, you know, some people know it. But I listen to reasoned candidates, candidates who understand the issues, who talk about the issues. And Jesse, like so many of them, Jake Ockenklaus, when he had, we had him on last year, uh, all of them are very much given to discussing what really matters to people and taking reasoned positions. So um, I think that we should all consider the fact that perhaps as a voter base, uh, we listen a little bit more, I would hope, and the candidates speak more, more intelligently and more completely to the issues. And so um, it's programs like this that give us an opportunity to get a little bit smarter, listen a little more carefully. And I am just always pleased when we get people on like that, you know, who can who can really tell the story of what's going on. Another big issue, of course, you know, over the past couple of years, that's that's been, you know, it, it comes up what, 
with all too much regularity with every single mass shooting, every single school event, every single time multiple people die, whether it's in a school, a nightclub, a mall. We once again talk about the issue of gun control, banning guns, doing this, doing that. People are putting out thoughts and prayers. Other people are saying thoughts and prayers don't matter. Uh, we need to come up with some kind of a resolution. And here again in Massachusetts, I think that we're running ahead of the curve in some respects in that, you know, the Second Amendment is the Second Amendment. And how do we address it smartly and above all responsibly? And we had a wonderful interview uh, with Bob McQuarrie, his wife, Stavrula, uh, Michael Cox as well. Episodes 53 and 51 were absolutely brilliant, I think, in terms of illuminating what could be a great position with respect to balancing gun rights, mm -hmm. gun advocacy, and gun responsibility. Can you look at the data by countries? Like the U.S. just has a lot more killings and they're, you know, gun violence. Like, For more not, I mean, we, can look, we can have a statistics conversation. You know, I'm, I'm an epidemiologist. I look at statistics and numbers all the day. I don't think that's, you know, it's valid to say that that you would have the same numbers of deaths if guns, if there were no guns. Like, it just is not true. But I agree, well, with, I you agree with you that I we need to deal with the root cause of this. A, a, great, a great way to look at that, and I think the, the, uh, the point you're making, I've, I've had this conversation many times, is like comparing New York City to London, right? So if you compare the data from New York City to London, right, they will be very, very consistent with the amount of assaults, the amount of assault and batteries, the amount of you know, assault and batteries, deadly weapon. About uh, what, what what the difference is, and I think that this is kind of the point you're making is the deaths are much higher in New York because in London they're beating people with clubs and stabbing them, and in New York they're shooting them. So I can see where you're going with the math. That yes, the gun is a much more efficient tool to kill people, and they're more likely to live if they're hit with a club or stabbed than shot. However, I'm not a big fan of getting hit with a club. Or stabbed either. Nor am I. Nor am I. Now, and you know, we need to address the root causes on in both London and New York. No, that, that's exactly the point I was trying to make, Max. I got you, I got what you're saying with the yeah, the gun is a very efficient way to kill lots of people, but it doesn't take away, you know, like London, you can't carry uh, you can't carry a knife with a point anymore now because they've gone down. They they legislated no guns. Okay, but that didn't solve the violent crime. It just solved the efficiency of the violent crime. So now knives became everyone's, you know, all the bad guys' tools and the good guys don't carry them because they follow the law, but they're still having a dramatically high amount of stabbings because you can't, you can't just legislate all the way down to where no longer can you get a pointed knife in England. You could obviously, you know, sharpen a knife like with a grind wheel or, you know, so, so I, I fully understand your argument and it's, and it's definitely an argument to have. Like it, it, there is, there is something to be said about the efficiency of firearms and because they are designed very well to do, you know, what was recently done with them. However, when you, when you solve one problem, like if you take away all the guns, which I think would be an impossible thing to happen in America. Uh, if you did, let's say you did take away all the guns, I still think you're going to have an extremely high violence. And I can tell you from a police officer's standpoint that like heroin has been illegal since long before I became a cop, yet I deal with it all the time. So just making a law that gets rid of guns doesn't mean they're not going to end up in this country because there's a lot of laws about illegal drugs, yet it's a dramatic 
thing that I deal with is overdoses. And so where's it coming from? There's a law against it. How could people possibly get heroin? There's a law against it. Oh, well, they find a way. So if we, if we take away all the guns from all the good guys, I guarantee you the bad guys will still find a way. And there's something to be said about that. You cannot legislate uh, violence out of people that needs to come from a more from a different perspective. And I can also just add to Stavrula saying is like when you are raised in a family where there's like family dinners and your grandparents and your cousins and like you, know, you have a close knit family and you have a close knit community when you're raised by a village and your neighbors are watching you and you're what it's so much different than nowadays where everyone's like that ain't my kid. Yeah, I don't, I don't, yeah. like, mm-hmm. like and the societal difference today versus even when I grew up and my mother's 100% Greek. So I grew up and half my family was big. So, you know, it's I, I think that as the culture switches, uh, we're going to be dealing with much more of this. And I can tell you from my 18 years as a police officer, I'm dealing more with mental health issues now than I ever have. So I don't know exactly where it all comes from, but I can tell you that the amount of Section 12s that I'm doing now and the amount of responses that I have that end up being non-Section 12s where we convince people just to go to the hospital on their own is it's a gigantic part of my job. And that wasn't a gigantic part of my job when I was three, four years on the job, when I, three, four years as a police officer. So there is a decay in, in, in mental health. There is a decay in services for mental health. And you combine mental health problems with very efficient weaponry. Mm. Well, there's your result. Like, you know, so do I blame the gun? No, because if you take away all of the, you know, all of the good guy guns, then bad guys are the only ones with the guns kind of deal. So I'm over. I I think that there's, there's a lot of middle ground here to discuss, but I always feel like one area is attacked more than the other. And as a guy who teaches active shooter for both civilians and law enforcement, every, I cannot think of one active shooter, not one that didn't exhibit like tremendous amounts and major red flags of mental illness, hatred, anger, prior to their launching their active shooter event. There's always these like huge, they're all, they're all extremely mentally ill, angry and violent. And then they launch this attack. And it would be great if we could focus in on stopping before the attack, but not jumping down on all good, you know, good people's rights. It's the, there's gotta be a middle ground somewhere. Yeah, and the the thing that stood out the most from that was from Bob McCrory, where you know the who's you know his background is you know steeped in the use of guns, the mm-hmm. safe, considered handling of uh, firearms. Uh, he's been the firearms officer for police. He was a Marine for years. Is the fact that most of the calls he goes out on that involve firearms also involve mental illness mental disturbance mm. of some sort it's not necessarily always just a you know a, a criminal activity it is right. a matter of who is getting the guns and why in the world were they, were they allowed access to the guns in the first place right and i want to jump in nick uh, and pete on this one because that the episode was one of the hardest ones for me and mm-hmm. to be honest it had come Remember, it was just after another mass shooting. All day, emotionally, mm. so it was so difficult as a, as a parent yeah. to be engaging with people who were saying, you know, this can be done safely. I grew up in Greece, and a lot of Europe, a lot of around the world, 
we just don't have that many guns. And while I understand the point that once the guns are there, safety is paramount, I should be honest that it was a difficult episode for me because I fundamentally think that there is a problem with guns in this country that is beyond, you know, trying to fix around the margins how to do it safer. Like we really need to be having the conversation. Why? Why do we want guns? Why? Uh, you know, why are we allowing this in our society? As a parent of young kids, I know that many, many parents have this as their top priority. And this, you know, is not the end. So we need to to move forward. So I just need to be honest that that was a mm-hmm. difficult, difficult conversation for me because it was trying to balance when I think that we are really need to be breaking outside of our viewpoint completely and, and starting to renegotiate everything around guns. So just wanted to to share that. And on the piece of mental health, separate from the guns conversation, what COVID has shown us is that Mm -hmm. mental health challenges are real. They have been exacerbated, loneliness, isolation, even through social media, you're seeing people like angry at a level. And I don't know if in your (laughs) workplaces, I'm just feeling that everybody (laughs) myself are at a point of a breaking point. And so mental health has to be Mm -hmm. a top 2023. Um, if we want to live healthy, um, sort of a healthy life moving forward. So happy to kind of elevate mental health, irrespective of the guns conversation is something that we all need to be paying attention to in the new year. Yeah, I mean, thanks. Yeah, Natalie. Yes. And I was um, thinking about guns with my um, part time job at the cafe. I've been doing a lot of food safety training and there's so many rules and regulations and best practices around handling food to prevent allergies and cross contamination and uh, uh, germs. And you look at the stats that they throw at you to say how important it is. And that's like, not to diminish it, but compared to the number of gun deaths, it's just, what, how is there so much regulation about food and driving? And um, it it just seems such a deficit in common sense that there isn't uh, that greater regulation uh, about um, issues around guns but anyway uh just something oh, yeah. that popped into me at the end of yeah. the year and with, you know, with the mental health issue what what you know distresses me most is the impact on children the youth because they went through i mean if anyone was going through a disruption in their lives a severe disruption it's children who had established a pattern of going to school being with your friends interacting with your friends and living your life that way mm-hmm. all of a sudden it's gone it's done you are locked in at home. Well, you're you're at home most of the time and you cannot experience, I don't know, on a very basic level, play. Play is extremely important for children. Uh, it's extremely important for adults, but for children, that's it's you miss a, a cognitive step, a cognitive area. How do you recover that? You know, I think that one of the areas, again, we ignore is that only a third of our country is sort of pushing the second amendment issue the clear majority of american citizens want some type of gun control they want some type of uh of training they want some type of licensing that makes sure that people who own guns are responsible and the other thing too that we miss is the fact that we're not the only country in the world that allows citizens to have gun but guns but we are the only country in the world that does it in a way where we don't either limit the type of guns that people can own 
We don't limit the number of guns that people can own, and we don't limit uh, or require uh, uh, the fact that if you're a novice, you can't use or get out there and get a license or a gun. Uh, I've visited uh, Turkey and Germany uh, where there are hunters. People do go out and go hunting. But in order to get a hunting license, for example, in Germany, you've got to go through extensive testing and you have to register the gun and you have to go in and re-register. And you are limited in terms of the number of guns you can own. Uh, in our country, I could have a thousand shotguns and a couple of AR models in this country. And, and, and that third of the country just advocates that I could keep on collecting and just going when there's really no need for all of that. Um, and I agree with Natalia. It it drives what I think is fear on the part of parents and children uh, because of the issue that we did discuss in our episode. And I must admit, uh, uh, one of our guests I had met in California uh, and his background too, uh, Nick was in law enforcement. Uh, and the one thing that all of them did agree uh, is that constant training and constant understanding of the weapons is key. Um, and on that one, I, I I thoroughly agree. And I also agree with Natalia, too. It was somewhat disturbing um, when you think about the fact that there are a number of gun owners who really uh, truly believe that, again, safety is important, but proliferation is not a problem. And I, I agree with Natalia that proliferation of weapons in this country uh, is a huge problem. The thing that another big issue that we talked about during the course of the year and had a wonderful set of interviews, by the way, was with uh, Ted McIntyre on clean mm -hmm. energy. Another issue, I think, uh, near and dear to our representative, Jeff Roy's heart. Uh, we interviewed Ted McIntyre actually in episodes 59 and 60. Uh, and and like so many other people that we've spoken to, when the experts come on our program, we all walk away, not just a little bit smarter, but I think a little, a, a little bit more aware of the context, how big an issue it is, uh, and the fact that there are people on the ground who live and breathe this stuff with a passion for addressing it and doing what they can. Before we get too far away from the concept of the roadmap, I just want to point out how valuable that exercise is uh, and continues to be that the, there are very few public policy, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, you would know better, Jeff, correct? I mean, where the, the state takes a 20-year vision or a 30-year vision, right, and plans towards it. And that's, in this instance, the state has done that. And what it provides is, we say a roadmap, it's essentially sort of a plan and goals and aspirational stuff, but it is also, and this is the thing I've become more, more interested in, it's sort of a narrative, it's a story about what the state is doing that people can grab onto, right? The roadmap is this sort of, you know, Star Wars myth of the the you know the the honest state seeking to to save itself, and it's a great thing. And so when we talk about the roadmap, you, you know, there's a lot of detail, 
But the, the essence of it is that the state has set this long-term goal that we should all be following, and, and it is an ongoing process, right? Literally not going to stop even in 2050. Uh, but it's, it's a remarkable thing that we've set a, a, what amounts to a 30-year goal in an environment where most of the time we just look to the next election. So again, right. good on your uh, your your bill. But it's it's we say roadmap, but that means a lot. It is an important concept. No, and I and I appreciate that. And please uh, jump in anytime during this because uh, I I can go off uh, on a tangent. But uh, so we, we you know we have the roadmap in place, and then the next step is how are we going to get there. What what measures do we have to put in place in order to achieve those goals? Because every five years, uh, the administration has to look at how we're doing uh, and what progress we're making. And it's actually broken up into subsectors and have to determine how we're doing with each subsector and come up with a plan for the next five years. So uh, in order to get this to all work, we had to uh, make some other measures in place. For example, and uh, I'm gonna urge everyone at home uh, who has a phone to get the ISO app on their phone. Uh, ISO is uh, the entity that uh, controls all of the, uh, the energy usage for uh, six states and Massachusetts is part of ISO New England. Uh, and Ted and I visited ISO New England just about a month or two ago. Uh, to see how they chart where the energy is coming from and where uh, where uh, it needs to be brought online to make sure that we don't have blackouts. So if you and, look and, at the and, ISO, Jeff, app, I could just the ISO, just uh, independent system operator, ISO New England, okay, yep. and it is this sort of gray, opaque, uh, sphinx-like organization that's mandated by the federal government. Right. But they sit on top all of the regional state and they make important decisions. So, again, I think uh, uh, Jeff is headed in the right direction to think about these ISO, ISO independent system operator in choosing how we're going to get our electricity and making plans has an enormous impact. And so they right. deserve attention <laughs> uh, from right. the state. So, you know, we look at that. And if you bring up your ISO app and I happen to bring it up. Uh, so. Uh, it's in real time, and it gives you a sense of where the energy is coming from. So if I look at it at this precise time, we're at 9.42 a.m. on Thursday, August 18th, 2022. 55% of the energy that's being used in these six states is coming from natural gas. 30% is coming from nuclear. 12% is renewables. 3% is hydro. So in order for us to reach the net zero goal, by 2050, we have to get rid of 55% of the energy uh, from natural gas. That it's a fossil fuel that uh, is is emitting carbon and uh, warming the planet. So how do we do that? Well, Massachusetts happens to be geographically situated next to a pocket of the most robust wind in the entire contiguous United States. And that's located 14 miles south of uh, Martha's Vineyard. And uh, when, uh, as soon as we were done with the roadmap bill, the speaker asked me to focus my attention on offshore wind and developing an offshore wind industry in Massachusetts that could be that robust source of energy that would replace uh, 
the uh, natural gas that we rely on that's imported through pipelines coming in from other states. The advantage of offshore wind is that we have robust wind off the coast of Massachusetts, and we can be energy independent if we harness all of that wind through a series of turbines. And uh, luckily, a lot of work has been in, put in place to set up leasing areas, which are set up by the federal government. They have auctions, they sell leasing areas, and they happen to be uh, seven or eight leasing areas in that uh, area, 14 miles south of Martha's Vineyard, that are beginning to develop a uh, series of wind farms. Now, Massachusetts has already broken ground uh, at Covels Beach and Bonstable for the first utility-scale offshore wind farm in the entire United States. So we're already ahead of the game. Those uh, uh, initial 62 turbines will be providing wind energy uh, as early as 2023. There's going to be enough power from those 62 turbines to power 300,000 homes. It's going to create 3,600 jobs. And in its equivalent of taking hundreds of thousands of, of vehicles off the road annually. It's good, clean, robust energy. So our goal with the next set of legislation was to uh, develop an offshore wind industry in Massachusetts and, and try to make Massachusetts the focal point for offshore wind in the United States. President Biden, uh, when he took office, set a national goal of 30 gigabytes of wind energy by 2030. With the farms that we have off the coast of Massachusetts, we are in a position to provide one third, over one third of that national goal. The lease areas that are in place already can supply 11 gigawatts of wind power. And that's incredible. And nobody else is doing this in the United States uh, at the scale we are doing it. So we ought to dive in fully into this effort and develop this industry in Massachusetts. So uh, a large part of the bill is developing through incentives, through tax credits, through uh, workforce development, uh, through changes in the procurement methods to establish Massachusetts as the go-to place for offshore wind in uh, the United Jeff, States. Jeff, if I, if I could just jump in, I mean, I, to, to reiterate, yeah. just, I mean, a different way, maybe you would use the statistic yourself. It turns out that, as everyone is fully aware, there's no fracking in Massachusetts. There are no coal mines. There are no oil wells, right? But we that means in the current state, to get that 50% natural gas that Jeff was referring to, we essentially send $20 billion out of the state of Massachusetts each year to go somewhere else to buy that. So exporting $20 billion a year, right? If you keep that $20 billion a year in the state, you have the multiplier effect where that $20 billion builds the Massachusetts economy. Notwithstanding the further benefit that Jeff pointed out that if you have the industry and the workforce here, there's this enormous economic benefit of having the wind the, the the wind industry centered in Massachusetts that you know so when we say energy independence it's a very concrete thing for Massachusetts because we really could stop sending 20 billion dollars a year out of state to buy uh, to buy fossil fuels and so that's another way to think of the benefits of having and and again just to reiterate 
if we're setting a 30 gigawatt goal nationally and Massachusetts can provide 10 gigawatts, I mean, what the heck? When we, why would you not, why think twice, right? This is such an opportunity. You know, just a couple of days ago, talking on the, uh, the climate space um, and the bill that we did over the summer, mm-hmm. uh, we included a number of deadlines, which happened to be December 31 of 2022. So our uh, executive office of energy and environmental affairs has been extremely busy over the last few weeks. And uh, every morning I get a call from them about uh, some other issue or report that they're doing. And uh, the the clean energy and climate plan uh, for 2050 was released uh, by the governor's office yesterday. Uh, I would uh, implore folks to read that because you're going to see what's going to happen over the next 28 years and uh, what types of energy we need and and how um, we're going to see a sea change uh, in how we use energy uh, here in Massachusetts. And uh, the highlight of the week for me was uh, being uh, at the um, the wind blade testing facility on Tuesday with the governor and the lieutenant governor and the secretary of uh, Environment and Energy Affairs and the the uh, president of the Mass Clean Energy Center, where we uh, made the announcement of uh, $180 million for port infrastructure changes that are going to take place in Salem and, and uh, in New Bedford and Somerset. It will have a transformational effect on each of these communities and energy uh, in Massachusetts, which is so vital to us achieving our climate goals, but it's uh, it's a real exciting time, and uh, I'm glad that uh, you brought up uh, that particular topic. Um, talking to the speaker about getting reappointed to uh, the Joint Committee on Telecommunications, Utilities, and Energy, uh, because I've enjoyed the work over the past uh, two years, and uh, think I have some more to offer. Uh, in the next two, and I will call upon my dear friend Ted McIntyre to uh, keep me posted, and uh, each of you on this show, uh, you know, to get involved, and let's uh, figure out where we're going to go uh, on climate and energy in the next few years. Mm-hmm. I'd also like to say too how lucky we are to have Ted McIntyre as a resident of Franklin. I've known Ted since the first of all Patrick campaign when he was one of the acolytes for Duvall uh, and came to us uh, as a partisan in the Democratic Town Committee. And we're very fortunate to have him. He is absolutely not only knowledgeable and an expert in his field, uh, but also a true asset for those of us here in Franklin. Uh, And I think we also ought to have Ted on a little more, uh, Mm -hmm. talk about more of the uh, energy uh, issues. Uh, And I also think, too, that we ought to make sure that we start to do a little bit more, go a little bit deeper. Uh, I think in our last episode, uh, whether it was the week or last week, I remember having a conversation with Jeff about how confusing uh, the purchasing of electricity is in, in Massachusetts, albeit you know, you've got all kinds of alternatives in terms of sourcing your your electricity. It's a contri- it's a very con- confusing field out there uh, to the point where I think uh, there was some uh, premium that I got in the mail 
And when you look at the premium that was being offered, as opposed to the cost of the energy, you were basically paying for the premium by the relatively high cost of the energy itself. And most consumers, again, you, you know, since you don't have a side by, well, there is one side by side, I think, site that does a comparison. Uh, you, you know, you really have to be your uh, your own advocate and do your own due diligence here in Massachusetts. So mm. I think we ought to come back to that uh, at some point in 2023. Well, it's... Uh... It's been a tremendously interesting year. Uh, I have uh, we've had a great time here on a more perfect union. Um, but as you can tell, we are still have many more things to discuss. So uh, join us again next week for a little more of a more perfect union. And we will be back, as Chris says, uh, next week. So please, as he says, join us. Uh, we're going to continue the journey. We're going to continue the discussion, and hopefully. Um, we've given you something to think about. Happy holidays and a happy new year. Mm -hmm.